listening to the Douglas Jacoby podcast. Here we bring you some of the material found on Douglas's website in podcast form. We hope that as you listen, you are challenged to think about faith. Today, Douglas is continuing his series on Old Testament characters, now looking at the lives of Ezra and Nehemiah. For more on this episode, follow the link in the show notes to Douglas's website. Now here's today's teaching. This is Old Testament Premium Podcast number 42 on Ezra and Nehemiah. Greetings from Atlanta, where we've just had a a fantastic AIM session on family life. In fact, we had two graduates from our two-year biblical training program from our own congregation, the North River Church of Christ. Right now, I'm preparing for a Bible talk at my house this weekend. It's called, Is God Tolerant? What a hot issue. In fact, a lot of these small group meetings, these evangelistic meetings I'm doing, are giving me ideas for next year's podcast series on hot issues. Well, the present series is on Old Testament characters, and we're examining the lives of about 60 men and women who have something to teach us. And this week, we're looking at Ezra and Nehemiah. Let's set, let's set the stage historically. The Persians are in power. God had previously used the Assyrians to punish northern Israel through war and captivity in the 8th century B.C. Then God used the Babylonians to punish the Assyrians and also southern Judah, particularly in the 6th century B.C. when the temple is destroyed. At the end of the exile, or the period of 70 years or so, the Jews, with the permission of the Persian king, begin returning to Jerusalem. This is the late 6th century. Yet the walls are not rebuilt, the temple is still in ruins, and there is a serious lack of leadership. Now, we're in the 5th century B.C. Enter Ezra, leading a group of exiles back to Jerusalem. Enter Nehemiah, who will be building the walls. Interestingly, their lives overlap. And once again, this is in the 400s B.C. Now, Nehemiah tends to be better known among Christians. Probably it's true to say Ezra is by far uh, the better known of the two books among the Jews. And with that in mind, we're going to focus more on Ezra than on Nehemiah. Ezra was a priest, a teacher, and a deeply spiritual leader. His pedigree, like the Apostle Paul's, was impeccable. He made the four-month journey from Babylon to Jerusalem with thousands of other Jews. Ezra was a man of the word. He had dedicated himself to teaching others the word. His conviction was white-hot. Nehemiah was a governor, a man of prayer, and a no-nonsense leader. Nehemiah rebuilt the walls, and that's a very inspiring and well-known story. Like Ezra, he refused to be distracted by lesser things. He, too, was a man of white-hot conviction. Both were sent by the king of Persia for the benefit of Israel, for their spiritual improvement, probably for their national stability, even though at this time they're just a province in the mighty Persian Empire. Both men play a vital role in promoting the security of Israel. Nehemiah, its physical security. Ezra, its spiritual foundations. Because there's so much material, we're going to confine our study to Nehemiah chapter 8. And I'll be reading from the NET, the New English Translation, starting in verse 1. All the people gathered together in the plaza, which is in front of the water gate. They asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. 
So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which included men and women and all those able to understand what they heard. This happened on the first day of the seventh month. So he read it before the plaza in front of the water gate from dawn till noon before the men and women and those children who could understand. All the people were eager to hear the book of the law. In the opening scene, we see the book of the law, which has been long neglected among the Jews, though not forgotten, is brought out. An audience includes men and women. Notice it's not just men, as is so common in many traditional religions and parts of the world. It's a mixed audience, men and women and children, at least those who are able to appreciate the message. The readings lasted six hours. Now, I don't think they just read nonstop for six hours. There'd be a lot of fatigue in there. Uh, but they, there were readings and explanations, as we'll see in a moment. Continuing in Nehemiah 8, verse 4. Ezra the scribe stood on a towering wooden platform constructed for this purpose. Standing near him on his right were a bunch of fellows, I won't say all their names, and on the left too. Ezra opened the book in plain view of all the people, for he was elevated above all the people. When he opened the book, all the people stood up. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people replied, Amen, Amen, as they lifted their hands. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Well, Ezra is certainly visible. He's on a tall wooden platform. Reminds us of the time Solomon addressed the assembly, also on an elevated platform. He was probably essential with such a crowd of, of many, many thousands for him to be visible and audible. And so he's standing on the platform, and the word is lifted up. The word is as it should be, exalted. And notice the respect that the people show when the Bible is read. Ezra is flanked by a number of leaders, 13 in all. And as we see, this is an occasion for worship because although they stand during the reading, when he first brings out the word and they say amen, it says they bow down with their faces to the ground. That's something we don't see in church very much. And then it mentions in, uh, in, in verse 7, Joshua, Bani, Sherebiah, and a bunch of other guys, all of whom were Levites, were teaching the people the law as the people remained standing. They read from the book of God's law, explaining it and imparting insight. Thus, the people gained understanding from what, from what was read. And so we see 13 other guys explaining the scripture, either translating it into Aramaic, which is possible because that was the language of the Persian Empire at this time, or maybe they're not translating it, maybe they're simply explaining it. Just as when we read through the Torah, that is the, what's called the books of Moses, we need some help. We need at least a friend to guide us or a commentary. It's not all so easy. And maybe these men were simply walking into the crowd to ensure nothing was missed. Maybe they were going from person to person or family to family or clan to clan and just making sure people were following along. These 13 were Levites. You know, the priest should be more tuned in to the will of God, should be more knowledgeable of the word of God than the others because of their leadership responsibility. And as it says, the people are learning. They're growing in their knowledge of God's word. So we have Ezra here. Now Nehemiah is seen. We're in verse 9. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priestly scribe, and the Levites, who were imparting understanding to the people, said to all of them, This day is holy 
to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping when they heard the words of the law. He said to them, Go and eat delicacies and drink sweet drinks and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Then the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not grieve. So all the people departed to eat and drink and to share their food with others and to enjoy tremendous joy. For they had gained insight of the matters that had been made known to them. Well, Ezra is the teacher, but notice that God uses others. He used the Levites to amplify the teaching ministry of Ezra. It's not a one-man job. It wasn't then, in the 5th century B.C., and it certainly isn't now either. Many teachers are needed, many who can expound on the Word of God. Ezra and Nehemiah are working together. We're going to return to that point in a few moments and flesh it out. Though Israel is tempted to weep, Ezra and Nehemiah tell them to rejoice. Why would they be weeping? Well, well, maybe the, the reading of the law pricked their consciences as they realized how good God is, how far they had drifted, and, and in fact, uh, the punishments that might be awaiting them. Because the law talks about blessing and uh, punishment. But the message was to be seen and felt as a declaration of God's grace. God is good. And so the leaders don't want the people to feel bad. I, of course, they want uh, holiness. They want change. But they want people to understand God. And when they come to know God better and to understand his word better, they're filled not just with insight, but also with joy. So it ends up being a really happy time, a time of learning and sharing with others. And one thing that's uh, what was the case here is that is the Feast of Tabernacles had been neglected. This is not to say it was never celebrated, but not like this. And so we see in verse 13, on the second day of the month, the family leaders met with Ezra the scribe, together with all the people, the priests, the Levites, to consider the words of the law. They discovered written in the law that the Lord had commanded through Moses that the Israelites should live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month. This is the Feast of Tabernacles. Continuing, and that they should make a proclamation and disseminate this message in all their cities and in Jerusalem. Go to the hill country and bring back olive branches and branches of wild olive trees, myrtle trees, date palms, and other leafy trees to construct temporary shelters as it is written. So the people went out and brought these things back and constructed temporary shelters for themselves, each on his roof and in his courtyard and in the courtyards of the temple of God and in the plaza of the water gate and the plaza of the Ephraim gate. So all the assembly which had returned from the exile constructed temporary shelters and lived in them. The Israelites had not done so from the days of Joshua son of Nun until that day. Everyone experienced a very great joy. Well, this event is is one of the three annual events required by the Torah where all the men had to come back to Jerusalem and it focused the people on scripture. Now, in the Persian uh, period, well, certainly in the Assyrian and Babylonian exile, people wouldn't have had the opportunity to do this because they were deported. They They were somewhere else. They were far from home. In the Persian period, as the exiles began to return, 
and, uh, and Jerusalem starts to be more populated, and, and Ezra comes later, and, and Nehemiah, the people are focusing on Scripture, and it's becoming possible to obey some of these laws that were centered around Jerusalem and the temple. Well, not since the time of Joshua, at least eight centuries earlier, had Israel celebrated tabernacles, also called Sukkot, or the Feast of, uh, of Booths, had they celebrated in this manner. In fact, this is like a second exodus. After the first exodus under Moses, of course people live in shelters because they didn't have regular homes. They were on the move. Uh, everything was temporary. In fact, even the temple was temporary. It was a portable tent called the tabernacle. Well, this is like a second exodus. Now they've been delivered not from the bondage of Egypt. They've been uh, delivered from uh, being in foreign land, being in Persia, and they've come back. And so the booths here, the tabernacles they live in, will create a natural parallel to the liberation and the joy of the desert period. I'm going to read just one more verse. Ezra read in the book of the law of God day by day from the first day to the last. This, uh, they observed the festival for seven days, and on the eighth day they held an assembly as was required. So every day was a time of listening and learning. And it wasn't just a, a teaching weekend like a Friday night and a Saturday. This was seven days of fairly intensive study. And notice that it wasn't a burden. In fact, there was a joy and people were paying attention. And not just the adults, but even the older children. They're focused. And then it says on the eighth day, they held an assembly as was required. Well, that was according to the Torah. So through the process, Israel comes to see the sinfulness of mixed marriages and other breaches of holiness. Now that issue, the marriage issue, would dominate the uh, latter chapters of Ezra as well as Nehemiah. So they're learning. Notice how these two ministries are together. Both Ezra and Nehemiah are highly admirable men, yet they have different skill sets. Ezra is a priest, a teacher, and a deeply spiritual leader. Nehemiah is a governor, a man of prayer, a no-nonsense leader. In the church today, just as in Israel of old, there's a need, a dire need for builders. Persons not only with plans and vision, but the work ethic, and the focus to see the job through to its end. Yet, there's a need for the teaching ministry. And these are not entirely separate. Now, some churches overemphasize the teaching aspect. When you attend their meetings, when you're in their fellowship, you won't see a lot of guidance. In fact, there may be no overall plan. Sometimes people even get puffed up by their insights. But Typically, they're not focused enough on others, on the community, really in relationships. They're not enough focused, they're not focused enough to, to really convert their knowledge into action. And so that creates a stagnation. Now, other ministries, they definitely have a plan. Oh, yeah, they've got the practicals all down, but, but the Bible knowledge is paper thin. Growth and spiritual knowledge may be viewed as a luxury, or at most, simply one of many components in a healthy ministry. Yet the Bible elevates the place and prominence of the Word much higher than this. In fact, we need an integration 
of these ministries, building and teaching, grounding, rooting the people, and then reaching out in growth. Teamwork is the operative word. I remember when I was in high school, for three years I played soccer, that is, football, what the rest of the world calls football, not here in the U.S., though. And uh, I, I was always a defensive man. Yet often I played midfield or, or a bit further back because I was big and I could, I could block the ball. I wasn't terribly fast, but I didn't mind running. I took directions from the captain. We paid attention to the coach, the drills, the practices. Uh, it would have been ridiculous without, uh, without that kind of direction and listening. In fact, when I moved to London... In 1982, I started my own football team because where I was, they didn't have one. And we had an international team, I think 10 different nations, as we traveled around playing football or soccer. And, and what made it so much more fun was working together. It wasn't a one-man show. It wasn't one person. And I, I was, I guess, the, the facilitator, the organizer. A fellow from Sierra Leone was the captain. I had a manager from New Zealand. And, of course, we had permission from our dormitory, our hall of residence, so we had backing and equipment. It, it was really a concert, not a, a one-man area. I think of the time I was in the Scouts. In the Boy Scouts, I learned it's a lot easier when we're all pulling together than when one person's giving the orders, expecting others to do the work. No one enjoys that. And when I tried that leadership model, people didn't like me very much. Then I think later of working for uh, churches, being on church staff for 20 years. It's not a one-man show. You totally burn out. It's a time to, to work with others, and there's joy in that work. Now, these days, though I, I'm not a staff member, I do work closely with the leaders in our congregation. It's called North River. Uh, we have a number of elders, many deacons. We've got preachers. I'm a teacher, but there are many uh, men and women who work together. Again, the symphony is a concert of players. It's not a one-man show. Well, complementary ministries, not competing ministries. Whenever I have an opportunity, I try to explain this because so often the ministry of Bible teaching is misunderstood as though uh, the plan is to let that take over and, and no more outreach. We'll just sit at home and read our Bibles. Complementary, not competing. I find it difficult to get this concept across. I don't mean hard to explain it, but I mean to get this concept to really sink in. Critique may be construed as criticism. Some uh, imagine that teachers are trying to take over the church. Uh, this is rarely the case. There may be suspicion increased by insecurity on the part of leaders who know that their Bible knowledge is weaker than it should be. Uh, for this reason, it's extremely important that church builders include teachers and their leadership teams. Nehemiahs need to invite in the Ezra's. Ezra's need, need to be humble and, and work together with the Nehemiahs. And just as a church will remain immature without spiritual overseers, or what the New Testament calls elders or shepherds, so it will not be all that God intends it to be without teachers. It's the threefold ministry that's the key to success, the ministry of, of preachers and shepherds and teachers as we see in Ephesians, for example. And so if you are a Nehemiah and not an Ezra, pray that the Lord will send an Ezra into your life so you can go deeper in the Word and be, uh, be well-rounded in your ministry. If, though, you're an Ezra without a Nehemiah, pray the Lord will send Nehemiahs into your life. 
because on our own, we're incomplete. What does the story of Ezra and Nehemiah uh, tell us about God? We see several things. First, God doesn't give all his gifts to just one person. Rather, by distributing them among various individuals, cooperation and teamwork are fostered. God gives his gifts to many, not just to one. Second, he provides leaders to rally the people of God in the work of God. We see that with the two men we've looked at, and if you look more broadly in the book of Nehemiah, as they build the walls, it's very clear. Third, the Lord provides teachers to root the people in the word of God. So the leaders rally the people in the work of God, but thirdly, God provides teachers to root the people in the word of God. And last, he desires that in hearing his word, we will discern and we will rejoice in his grace. Not sad, not dragging around, but growing in insight. And as a result of that, the increase in joy, we grow firmer in our commitment to the Lord and to one another. The Lord desires that in hearing his word, we will be discerning and we will be joyful as we understand his goodness and his grace. We hope you enjoyed Douglas's teaching on Ezra and Nehemiah. For additional notes and resources, be sure to check out Douglas's website in the show notes. The website has hundreds of articles, podcasts, and videos for you to access for free. You can also become a premium subscriber and gain access to thousands of online resources from Douglas's teaching ministry. Thanks again for listening.